Yes. Yeah. I never know hey, what the threshold you're, is. You're getting it down, John. <laughs> well, because you always start talking, so I wanted to be the first one to talk today. Yeah. So that's not, it's not a cold opening. What do you call that? When? A normal opening? Yeah, the way we used to do it. The or intro? we do sometimes where we just pick a point where we want to start the episode at and add the intro music to it. It's not a cold opening. It's a natural. I, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, John, we made it through the uh, Texas polar vortex. Yeah. That was pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I didn't, I didn't have too many issues, so I can't really complain. I try not to complain because there's people who had it far worse. Yeah, same. I at least had power and heat. I did lose some, some access to hot water and things like that. But other than that, I, we were fine. Oh, no internet for three days. That was really hard. That, that was yeah. insanely hard. Not only just because the kids were going crazy because they couldn't get online or do anything, but there's no TV because that's all internet-based and everything. Yeah. Um, I couldn't use my phone because that network was all either clogged up or also having issues. I think they were clogged up. I don't know. So, I think, well, I think some of the cell tower sites, um, it, when, they, when their battery pack backups ran out, they're, mm -hmm. they're down. Yeah. Either way, I couldn't even, I could barely use my phone for anything. Yeah. No, we, uh, we had it much better than that. I mean, we did lose power on mm -hmm. and off for one day, but um, we never lost internet. Our cell service was always good. Yeah. The thing about losing internet, especially for, for me as a developer on the cloud. Oh, yeah. Um, I couldn't do crap. I thought I, could, I thought I would, okay. I thought, okay, I can't get online, so I can at least write code. I just wouldn't be able to save it. And I, I told myself, that's fine. What I ended up with was just a bunch of scratch because I couldn't save it, so I couldn't get any feedback on any kind of issues. But I also couldn't run it, which I couldn't get any kind of feedback from. So it was just like yeah. I was just it, – it just, it just did not feel fun or productive at all because I couldn't run it. But John, you're a Salesforce developer. You should be used to that. <sighs> I'm just saying. Or next time, before the storm hits, just up, upload yourself to the cloud. Did I die? No. Somehow you uploaded yourself to the cloud. <laughs> That'd be nice. Uh, <laughs> and, and in some of my environments, I didn't even have the full metadata down yet. So even ones where I could try to do some references and stuff, they weren't there. And I don't know. It just it just wasn't working for me. So I had to stop even trying because it was just more frustrating than it was productive. Yeah. I didn't get a whole lot done uh, because I, I'm basically, I was pretty preoccupied with just going around, checking yeah. faucets, reading the news, charging batteries, all kinds. Of, and I think it's just the anxiety of everything. I just didn't get much work done. Yeah. You mentioned reading the news, and because I didn't have internet and barely access on my phone, I actually did not know it was Texas-wide. I thought it was Dallas local until I got internet back and I was able to start reading stuff that, that I realized how widespread it was. So wow. I was a bit out of the loop for a while. Yeah, you sure were. What do you think of this beer? Good. I'll, I'll tell like you it. what, for a for a hazy that was made in September, Canada September, that I forgot about in the back of my pantry, this is really good. Mega Spaceways by Modern Times. It, with uh, Nelson, which probably is, uh, oh, it's all Nelson. Wow. This is my favorite Nelson beer. Nelson Sauvin, is what they call hmm. it. I believe it's, um, Nelson is a, um, it's a Kiwi hop. It's uh, New Zealand. Well, I'm, I'm enjoying the beer. Yeah. I, uh, this is a I need a beer week. I actually. Well, you came to the right place. I, <laughs> yesterday was an I need an alcohol day. And uh, man, that cognac that <laughs> last night hit me harder than I thought it should have. 
Um, maybe I was too liberal with the poor, but um, yeah, I was drinking to kind of just keep my stress levels down and continue working because I was behind on a bunch. <laughs> not really drinking on the job. <laughs> I was behind, but I also had to do a bunch of new extra work because some feedback came back on some testing, and it turns out that some new code that I wrote broke a whole bunch of crap that I just was not expecting. Um, and somehow, well, I know what happened. I adopted your philosophy. No, it's my so I'm fault. I'm going to blame you. <laughs> it's my fault, of course. <laughs> so lately, because this this logic is is pretty big, and so I started doing um, more end-to-end testing than unit testing. So I basically had one big class that kind of created a bunch of scenarios and ran the tests. Well, when I added this new stuff, I got lazy, and I didn't add any scenarios for this new stuff. So everything else seemed to work and seemed to pass until it goes into that block. Um, and so in order to kind of save my sanity and, and because this is such a, there's so many classes involved and so many different, uh, logic paths to go down, I'm going back to trying to do more unit testing, so to speak on this particular part of it. Not that I'm saying end to end testing is bad, just in this particular scenario, I should have stuck with that end with that kind of unit testing framework because mm. I need to test so many different scenarios in isolation. There's no way I could build one big scenario to cover it all. Yeah. No, I mean, and it, it bit me. And, and, and unit testing, I mean, I definitely think it has value, but I think in most cases, the most value is in, like, in more end-to-end tests, integration yeah. tests. This I'll say unit tests don't have value, and for certain types of projects or code, unit tests make more sense than end-to-end tests. Yeah. I mean, if I'm testing, you know, some kind of algorithm or whatever, I can just write unit tests for the algorithm. I don't have to fire it up, put it behind a web server, and call it through HTTP, you know? Is that, right. Uh, so it just, yeah. it, you know, as with everything in the world, it, it depends. Let me read you, this is, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was, re, I'm doing some IntelliJ plugin development. Are you? Yes. And so I've had to learn IntelliJ's whole platform and they have like all kinds of testing stuff set up so you can test your plugins. But let me read you like their, this is from their documentation on how to test plugins and it's kind of their philosophy. Most of the tests in the IntelliJ platform code base, oops, there we go again, are Model-level functional tests. What this means is the following. The tests run in a headless environment that uses real production implementations for most components, except for many UI components. The tests usually test a feature as a whole rather than individual functions that comprise its implementation. The tests do not test the swing UI and work directly with the underlying model. And most of the tests take a source file or a set of source files as input data, execute a feature, and then compare the output with expected results. Uh, anyway, let me skip down. The, the most significant benefit of this, te- this approach is that tests are very stable and require very little maintenance once written, no matter how much the underlying implementation is refactored or rewritten. And this is why, like in the testing world, people talk about black box tests versus white box tests, mm-hmm. which really they should be called clear box tests. Because if the box is white, you still can't see inside. It's white. Well, also, we're not allowed to label things black or white. Oh, yeah. Anymore. That's good. Opaque tests versus transparent <laughs> tests. <laughs> there you go. Oh, thank you for, thank you for keeping <laughs> us woke, John. Gosh, can you imagine you how can, much trouble we'd be in? You can count on me for that, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, but, you know, if, you, if your tests are very white box, meaning they're going, they're really validating internal details, then the, all those tests are going to, let's say you, you refactor some of the internal details. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't break anything. It, it's, you know, your end-to-end test still pass, but all your tests that are testing the internal details, maybe like you're, you're testing how many mock calls get sent to like, I don't know, some internal function or whatever, like that's all going to break. And that's all just wasted. That's all waste in terms of effort that you've got to go. 
Yeah. I mean, so tests in general, I mean, they are, uh, any test code, as with any code, it's, it's all liability. It's all a kind of debt in a way. Right. And if you can get a lot of value out of, let's say, a moderate amount of end-to-end testing, then the, the value there is pretty good. Yeah. Um, you can also go instrument your code with just endless amounts of white box unit testing, which can have some benefit. But boy, that's a lot of liability. It's a lot of cost. You know, you go change some minor thing and you have, you know, 150 unit tests that breaks. That's, that's no fun. Yeah. Um, but what's, is that, and then it's like, are your tests working for you or are you working for your tests? Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good way of putting it. Uh, let's see what else. Let's see. Uh, another consequence of our testing approach is what our test framework does not provide. We do not provide a recommended approach to mocking, blah, blah, blah. Um, anyway. That's interesting. But anyway, I just I thought it was interesting. You know, because I guess the point of this is that, you know, they, and it's, I don't know if it's super clear in what they wrote here, but it's a, the tests are, in a, basically, they're almost all integration tests. It, it does, it makes, it ha- would have very little value to, for me to write a bunch of unit tests for my IntelliJ plugin. Why not just... Yeah. I mean, again, there's, there could be some value there, and depending on the functionality of the plugin, there may be some things that are just really make a lot of sense for unit testing. Right. And you can even, even with unit testing, you can still, you can still be fairly black box with your unit testing, which um, I would always recommend the go-to method. Um, again, not that there's, there's not some cases where you have to do some really white box unit testing. But it should, those are, that should be really rare. Yeah. Because there's not that many scenarios, you know, proportionally. Yeah. I think in, in, in my case, I, um, I grouped functionality too much, uh, for lack of, I'm not sure exactly how to describe it, but I, the, the kind of, I didn't, I didn't, why can't I talk? I can't, I wasn't segmenting things correctly. I put okay. a lot of functionality into one class, and a lot of that hinged on a single entry point in the method. Which meant that I had to have a huge uh, test class because it had to build this entire scenario that would, with one single call, go and test everything. So another benefit of testing is when you go to do your tests, it can really make you realize w- the design problems you yeah. have in your underlying code. Which, you know, you may be like, I'm fine with that for now. Let's move yeah. on. Or you might be like, you know what? I can just easily refactor some of this out right now. And just do it, you know. Which I ended up doing. I ended up refactoring a lot of it out and... It it worked out because I found some inefficiencies in the code where it was requiring things several times when it didn't need to. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of this functionality that really only needs to be queried once per transaction. So I implemented a lot of kind of singleton style caching of record access stuff um, just to kind of help save some of that time yeah. and resources. It was interesting because someone asked me recently about you know what's better to query the database and do multiple updates query the database once and loop through, you know, a ton of records just to figure out what you need to update and all that kind of stuff in the Salesforce world. And obviously I lean towards query as much as you can and loop through it as much as you can, but yes. it, it's just a balance. It's one of those things that's hard to answer. There's some famous, I don't know if it's an internet post, cause this could be like back to the Usenet days or something, or maybe it's in some old book. I'm not sure, but you know, developers should understand um, the orders of magnitude of different yeah. types of things. So you've got like, you know, in process things, that's a certain order of magnitude. And there's out of process things, another mm-hmm. order of magnitude. And then there's like, um, 
you know, over the net, or there's like, then there's like two disc or to some kind of IO, then there's over the network and you keep adding zeros to all these things. Yeah. So I think, think of the orders of magnitude or order of magnitude of, of a call to your database. Well, so you're going out of your process for sure. You're going off right. of your machine for sure. You're going over a network and Salesforce is a big, even, even a single pod is probably pretty big. Yeah. I'm sure they have really fast optimized, you know, gigabit switched networks and all that kind of stuff, but still you're going across the network. Then you're going into another machine, uh, and that and that machine then is going have gonna have to go to disk to, to query your stuff. Yeah, and then it's got to do that all that coming back, and it's probably you know a thousand ten. I mean, I'm not I'm not exaggerating here. A thousand to a hundred thousand times slower to go to the database than to just go to the database once and you know get more things and cache them in your process. Right. Yeah. In your memory space. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that we're kind of forced to do because of the limitations of Salesforce and, and the governor limits, but it's not like it's, you know, back in the day when I was just doing SQL, you know, what do we call them? Client server applications, three-tiered applications. Yeah. You know, I still, I didn't think much about going back to the database, you know, however many times I needed to. I mean, it was rare that I really thought about caching. Um, when I tried to build my own custom ORM that failed, that's when I started thinking more about caching and how to... Mm how to kind of optimize some of that, but it just, that's a science of itself. Yeah. Don't feel bad about that. Do you know how many people have tried to write a, write a custom ORM and it failed? Like <laughs> I will tell you, it's, it's 99.9% .9 of people that have tried to write a custom ORM have failed. <laughs> Probably every developer has tried to write some form of ORM before they realize. I never have. I mean, I've written like simple data, data access layers just for some abstraction and mm -hmm. stuff. But um, no, I've always, I mean, I remember the first time I saw, I think it was like hibernate or one of these. And, and realized what it was doing. I'm just like, that's actually pretty awesome. Well, I think for me, it was a, it was a matter of ignorance because I was building an ORM without knowing, realizing I was building an ORM. I had no concept of an ORM at the time. Mm. I just was building this, what I thought was going to be the centralized access point that knew how to read the database and the code did not. It was trying to abstract all that. But as I matured as a developer, I realized what I was trying to do was build an ORM and that was going to fail hard. Yeah. The way what what platform it. was this? Or uh, Visual Studio at the time. Oh, okay. Uh, C Sharp. Yeah. So SQL. And Actually, no, it wasn't just SQL. That was the other reason I tried to build this because um, I had to read SQL and I had to read um, Oracle because I was I was integrating with uh, One World. Is that what it was? Oh, Oracle was One World yeah. database oh, system was, was, for um, ERP PeopleSoft, right? Or yeah. Oracle PeopleSoft. Yeah, so yeah. I had to read two different sources at, at any given point in time. So I was trying to abstract the code from having to know about those two different sources. Sure. Yeah, that's always fun. And this was what this this was this might have been also before there was whatever they called they ported Hibernate to .NET and then .NET got it um, Entity Framework, which is which is a norm. Yeah, it was before Entity Framework. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, good times. Now, the, th the thing I think it's coolest about some of these ORMs is that they track the unit of work. Yeah. And so, you know, you you make a call to get the things you want, and now there are objects in your in memory, mm -hmm. and you just change those objects, and then you don't even do anything because the, the you know, the method or whatever, the service method that you're doing this in, they, they kind of wrap it auto-magically, and as soon as that method is done, it exits. Then the ORM kicks in. It's got the whole unit of work there. It sees everything you changed in those objects and then figures out how to build queries to write that all back to the database in all the right order and everything yeah. in a transaction. 
And, you know, you can go down Orm Hell for sure. I mean, yeah. and, and when you start getting more complicated stuff, that's when you, you actually have to learn more about the Orm. Like, I've gotten in situations where I had to learn a lot more about the, I won't say internals, but just more the advanced stuff of Hibernate than I ever wanted to. Yeah. Because, you know, you're pushing up against complex things. And, and although, you know, in this case, Hibernate, I mean, it, it did as bad of a good a job as you could do to solve those things, but it, it just does get to the point where, like, okay, now you're kind of flying a 747 here and you got to know what all these buttons and switches mean. It's, it's, and it's still at that point, and that's one of those things where some, I think it's a personality thing, but some developers are like, oh, this is way too complicated. Like, we should have just, you know, written our own queries and done this yeah. by hand. And, and I get that. And because in some cases, that, that may be the right thing to do. But I think a lot of cases, it, it does get to the point where that, these, these ORMs, the more complex or more capable ones, I mean, they, they are very powerful, but when you're pushing up against those, you know, more complex use cases, you really have to understand that tool more, maybe more than what you wanted to, but it's still probably saving you. If you, and I think, I think it pays dividends to, uh, to learn tools like that. Yeah. Because they will save you. Unless for some reason you just need to hand craft, like hand optimize and everything, all your queries. And which in some cases you do, if you've got just something where you're, you know, it's web scale. Yeah. Right. You're, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of queries per minute or something like that. Um, then yeah, you, that's, you don't want an ORM for that. But I mean, for like typical IT development where you've got, you know, moderate skilled programmers, you, you don't, you really probably don't want them handwriting queries. You're, you're better off. With yeah. someone kind of, you know, have one person who's like the, the hibernate expert that can, when someone does bump up against something complex, they can be like, oh, yeah, you need to do this, you know. Right. But other yeah. than that, you know, let your developers just kind of stick to their object-oriented development or whatever, and don't, they don't have to be SQL masters or hibernate masters or whatever. Yeah, I, I prefer that as well from my side of things. I mean, not that I have someone to kind of hand that off to, but I do kind of treat my workflow that way. I kind of try to establish what my data needs are from the database and i try to kind of wrap some methods around that sometimes an, an entire object around accessing that data so that when i'm writing my code i'm only focused on a method that says go get me my data so then i can just work with that data so i don't have to go and deal with that in fact if you look at a lot of my code i have things structured in a very specific way where queries are always their own method i never do a query in line and mainly because I want to, I don't want to have to think about that query. And I don't want to have to read that query. Yeah. All I want to, to do when in my method is go, I need data, go get the data, and then I'll work I with mean, that honestly, data. Honestly, just having, even even if they're statics or whatever, having SQL code in your Apex or Java code or whatever mm -hmm. is already gross enough that it yeah. has to be in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Plus, I, I like to format my um, SQL in a way that I can easily add and remove fields. So I have this whole indentation structure where... Each select field is its own row or own line in the code. Yeah. Um, so that takes up enough space, too. And thankfully, with IDEs, I can just collapse that. So essentially, I just kind of relegate that to its own method. That method knows how to read the database. And, and you know, you pass in the arguments you need to so I can filter things properly. But my code itself that's accessing the data, it just has to say, go get me this data. And I don't care what you do. Just give me the data. Yeah. And that saved me a lot of times because sometimes I've had to turn those queries into dynamic queries, dynamic SQL queries, or sometimes I've had to pull information from different parts of the system to complete the filter requirements. And that doesn't mess up my method. Yeah. It doesn't, not only does it not, not only does my method stay readable, but I'm not having to inject anything into that method. Yeah. Which means my test doesn't have to change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's one of the, um, I don't know if there's like a solid principle or what, but you know, it, you know, if you've got your business logic 
in the same place as your um, database access logic, then you're, mm -hmm. you know, that's, you're violating probably a lot of principles there, but probably the main ones be the, like the single responsibility principle. Yeah. And also there's some other kind of axiom that goes along with these, which is, um, you know, a class or a, a unit, whatever you want, whatever you're working with should really only have one reason or one type of reason to change. So if your class has to change because of business logic changes, that's fine. But if it, but it, if it also might change because of query logic or, or data access logic changes, then, then that's a, that's kind of a smell. Like it's, yeah. it's changing yeah. for different types of things. And that means that the class probably does too much. Right. Yeah. Of course, these things all have to be balanced. Yeah. You know, you got the Ruby guys who uh, a method can't be longer than three, cannot be longer than three lines. <laughs> Like, well, your language is more terse and succinct than mine is, that's for sure. Yeah. So, and maybe that works for Ruby guys. Yeah. I do want to use this to segue into another topic, but I do want to toot my own horn here a bit um, because I got some feedback. So I, if you remember before I joined you, I was working on a product and that's, one of the last things sounded I did on a that, little, that didn't come out right, John. What? Before you joined me? Before I joined you? Well, I don't even know what you mean, actually. Oh, before I left my previous company and joined okay, our company. company. I didn't know if you were... Talking personally or business or what? Oh, it's always personal. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. I got to pass a glass. Um, so one of the last things I did was I, I integrated that application with a whole new LMS system. And I did that. Um, what I, in what I thought was the proper way, which was creating a bunch of interfaces using uh, connected application entry to to establish how to connect to that AP, to that LMS's API and all that kind of stuff. And it's one of those things where um, I knew I wanted to, before I knew that was going to be the last thing I did, I knew that in the future I may want to extend it or I may want to attach this to a different LMS. So at the time I was building it and architecting it, I built it in a way that you could extend it and anything else in the application that needed to know about uh, courses from the LMS or, you know, what an individual's uh, results were for that LMS and all that kind of stuff was abstracted away. Um, and I hoped I made the right decisions. And uh, So you abstracted your LMS? Well, I built proper interface classes for everything. So there's an interface for um, getting the course catalog. And it's just, you know, there's dependency injection and all that kind of stuff in the system that yeah. would tell it what type of LMS I'm trying to connect to, which means go grab this concrete version of that class, which knows how to talk to that LMS's API in order to get the thing and create the new data structure that the other side of the code knows how to understand. Just typical architecture. Yeah, and, yeah right. I mean, I know you're, you're more familiar with that domain than I am, but I, I, would, be, I would worry about, okay, I can write this interface. Oh, this is different from the last one. It's, yeah. <laughs> that was not, I was not expecting that. It is different. This is not like the other one. What is this one? Um, this one is Pastry Goza, Peaches and Cream, and it's from Three Nations. It was very fruity. Oh, this is, okay. No, this is, um, are you familiar with Three Nations here in yeah. Dallas? Okay. So they have a little side project company called Symbol Brewing. And this, so their brewer, he's pretty talented. His name is Gavin. He's also kind of a douche, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, this is so, this is a project so he can do like small batch real creative stuff. Hmm. Well, that's pretty good. And once I'm past the shock of it being completely different from the last one, it's your, really good. Your taste buds have recovered. Yeah, yeah. It's tart. Yeah. It tastes like. It tastes like. Is there such thing as a peach Jolly Rancher? 
Yes, it has to, that is what it tastes like. <laughs> it tastes You're right. <laughs> yeah. I, I knew I could, I knew it was familiar and I knew it was peach-like. <laughs> but yeah, that Jolly Ranch is a good way to describe it. Um, so anyways, this last week, Pop in the Stack, um, someone I know who still still works for that company, which I thought that app was abandoned. I didn't know they were doing any new installs, but apparently they did do a new install and they had to integrate it with a brand new LMS. And apparently it worked just fine. Like all they had to do was implement wow. all the right class, all the right interfaces in their new classes to connect to the new API, add the new connected um, app, the new, um, what is it called? A connected app. Connected app. Yeah. Yeah. Like create a new entry for that. Thing. Yeah. And it worked. That's amazing. And I don't know if I finished my thought, but um, uh, yeah, t- to me, it's one of those things where, you know, you create the interface, you're working with one LMS and you're like, well, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm going to put a, you know, an, I don't know if it's like an anti-corruption layer or whatever, some kind of interface so that my application code is not directly touching like the LMS, the specific LMS's API. Right. <clears throat> um, but you also have to imp- imp- just assume, you know, the data structures as a part of those APIs. And I, my concern would be that, you know, the data model of one LMS may be different enough from another LMS that it just doesn't, it doesn't map. Yeah, and and the reality is, I actually I'm going to say Shiv because I like saying Shiv, but I did have some uh, what what's the proper way of saying it? It's not Shim. It's um crap. Polyfill. Polyfill. That's what it is. That, that's that's is that that seems like a browser term. What's a polyfill? I, <clears throat> my understanding so of the polyfill. It's a Shim. Is, it's a Shim. It's it. Yeah, my understanding of the polyfill is just just a Shim. It's just so MDN says. Uh, a polyfill is a piece of code, usually JavaScript on the web, used to provide modern functionality on older browsers that bar- browsers that don't support it. So that's specifically about providing new functionality that older browsers don't have. Yeah, that's why I think polyfill is probably the right word for this because the original application was connected to a specific LMS. When I rewrote it to connect to this new LMS, I built it using interfaces, knowing that the that the application expects things a certain way and expects certain pieces of functionality. Well, this new LMS that I was connecting to at the time did not support certain things. So I did have code that would kind of go and read what it could from, from the LMS. And then internally, it would kind of massage the data in a way that the application was expecting. So it did have to kind of do some value add and essentially some shimming or polyfill. Mm-hmm. And so, so that worked and that worked great. Yeah. And it turns out that they also had to kind of do something similar with this new LMS because there are features that... The one I connected to supported that that one doesn't, and also things that it supported that that it couldn't. So it was it was it was really nice to see that something I designed for future John, yeah, did end up working for future non John. Oh, it's just, that's good. I always like those stories because so often times it does not work out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It seemed like a good plan, and then that plan. Well, I've always kind of said that <laughs> I know when I've designed something correctly when it's easy for me to change it in the future, like. But it's not something you know of until you get a new requirement that says, hey, we need to do this. And I can go, okay, it's done in yeah. like a minute or so. And there's a rule of thumb that you should have like three things or three implementations of things before you try to create the abstraction. Yeah. Like do it three times or do it against three systems and then start to form your, your abstraction. Yeah. That's always the dangerous part, especially when you're talking about packages, because you, you kind of create this architecture and you're kind of stuck with it. It's not like I can upload a whole new set of bits and change right. my entire backend architecture with Salesforce. I can't. 
there's certain things that just always have to exist, especially if they're global, which means I'm, I'm, a, I'm enabling a contract to be formed between myself and, and whatever. Um, you can't do this with Salesforce. <laughs> whatever environment I'm installing into. So it's, with Salesforce, it's a bit more nerve-wracking in terms of your architecture because you, you focus on the fact that I might not be able to change this ever. And it's always going to be. Oh, there. yeah. So you like wake up in the middle of the night, worrying, sweating. Yeah. Did I build the right kind of abstraction? Yeah. For extendability. That's fun. That sounds healthy. <laughs> <laughs> so can we get to my segue? Yeah. Um, I thought this was interesting. It, it actually came to me by way of um, a CSI tricks. I don't know if you follow that, that website, but Chris Coyer. CSS tricks. CSS tricks, yeah. What'd I say? CSI tricks. <laughs> I knew I said it wrong when I said it. You've had like a beer and a half. Not even, no, you haven't had a beer and a half. You've had, a, you've had half a beer. And I've had like uh, three cold chicken nuggets because I was rushing to eat something. Mm, that sounds yummy. I didn't eat breakfast either. That, that, I'm living on three chicken nuggets right now. Okay, let me tell a quick dumb story <laughs> okay. that, that my wife told me this morning. So we have problems with our youngest son. Any, like the, any, the only thing he'll eat that we put in his in his lunch is fruit. So we try to fruit. He used to would eat like we'd put salami in there or lunch meat or whatever, just roll it up. And uh-huh. He just he would chow down. He'd be like, but he's got to where he won't eat any meat at all. Mm. Wouldn't even eat cheese. But the other day, I guess they um, they ordered Chick Fil A for lunch. This is when they were still at home, and he didn't eat. She got him like the little six piece, whatever they called Chick Fil A nuggets or chicken yeah. nuggets, whatever. And he he didn't eat. So she put them in the fridge. And then the next morning when she was making his lunch, she just put those chicken nuggets in there. And he brought his lunch box home and they were all gone. And she's like, I think I'm just going to order like a 12 count at the beginning of every week and just keep it in the fridge and then oh, put three in there every day. <laughs> I've got a solution for you then. Did you know, and I just found out about this yesterday, Costco sells a brand of fo- frozen chicken nuggets that taste just like Chick-fil-A nuggets. I'm gonna put this in the show notes, Uh-oh. but I'm gonna link it. I'm they should tell it to Sarah. Um, tell Sarah. Here's that article. But yeah, apparently, and I've watched on YouTube, and a bunch of people have tried them out, and they said, yeah, it's it's close enough that it's Chick Fil A nuggets. So if you ever need a, a fix, and you just want some frozen nuggets, and you can't bother to drive down to uh, Chick Fil A, or you're like me and my family who always seems to crave Chick Fil A on freaking Sunday, of course, yeah, <laughs> and they're not open, so. Yeah. That's the rule of Chick-fil-A. Yeah. You will want it on Sunday. <laughs> Could you imagine if they opened up just one more day? Maybe that's the novelty of it. You know, like the, the scarcity thing. It is. It's no, like it's because fa- you can't have it. And then you'll be later in the week. Like I couldn't get my craving fix yes, on Sunday. Right. I'm going to go sometime this week. It's artificial scarcity. Yeah. They're, they're hacking the public psychology, John. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Send that to. All right. So, what was Send your, that to get what were we Chick-fil-A segueing list. into? Um, so, I read I this article about this guy who wrote this uh, blog post that says, "I don't want to do front end anymore," and I, I thought it was great the way he he described it. Um, I'm gonna read I'm gonna read some of this and we can react to some of his paragraphs, but I'm gonna read it. He says, uh, "Nowadays, I make a living mainly with JavaScript and TypeScript using React JS as a framework front end. That's right. Front front ends are so complex that they now need frameworks to be able to manage their seemingly infinite component hierarchies." JavaScript is no longer uh, liked by the community, and so the community created a poor man's version of a typed language which duct tapes around an already poorly made language. 
starting a new project, uh, make sure you you write your project idea down because by the time you're finished setting up all the vast boilerplate, you probably have um, <laughs> you're gonna forget. Um, oh yeah, you better set up your project with TypeScript, ESLint, Web Webpack, and Babel because if you don't, then obviously you haven't learned anything since 2005 and you suck. Who's the author of this? Uh, I don't know. Their blog doesn't. It should show. They have they always have guest writers. Uh, well, no, I link directly to this guy's blog, but uh, oh, let's okay. see. This wasn't on CSS Tricks? Well, he read this article and he was paraphrasing it, so I went directly to the original writer. Um, let's see. Nom? N-O-M-M, but it's, it's like a foreign name. Oh, okay. Um, which I can relate to, to kind of the framework kind of uh, impersonation thing. Um, he goes on to say, don't have NPM? Better install that too, because nobody installs libraries without a package manager anymore. Oh, and while you're at it, install also, also install Yarm, because why not make use of two package managers at the same time? Phew, I did all that. Damn, that's commitment. You can finally write that what is essentially just HTML and JavaScript. Yeah. I was actually thinking about the other day. You know, if someone wanted to start out doing web development, I think that's actually more challenging than being like a, a back-end developer or doing Java stuff or .NET stuff. I mean, the amount of crap, and it's also, it's very unforgiving. Yeah. I mean, when you try to do something, let's say you're, um, you know, you're starting, trying to get started in web development, you're, you know, you're learning HTML, which is a pretty big lift. I mean, it's hard for us to think about that since we've been working with it for so long, but yeah. I mean, if you're learning that newly, then you've got to learn JavaScript, which actually is not an easy language to learn because... You know, even even more advanced JavaScript developers can't tell you what this means half the time. Oh, I hate this. Um, I hate and, this. And then you got CSS, which I think I'll, I mean, it, it's it, CSS is actually very hard to truly understand. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, th you may think you know what you're talking about. One of the things I like to ask people just if they think they know CSS or an interviewer is like explain because it's so fundamental to CSS, but so many people don't understand it. Explain the block formatting context. No clue. And it, but it's it's actually important to understand that. Yeah. Or else you're going to be dealing with just, you don't understand why something's floating weirdly or whatever. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> or why your span won't style a certain way. So, and, and that's just the base technologies. And then you got to learn all the stuff this guy just mentioned. Yeah. And then what do you do when you hit, you know, one of these NPM stack traces from hell? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this I mean, especially when you're dealing with package managers. I mean, you, you you install one thing and it goes, oh, hey, you need an updated version of this thing now. Run this command to install it. I'm like, all right, well, I'll yeah. do that. And then I go and refresh that. I mean, I can tell you times I've, I've sat there for an hour trying to update every freaking library on yeah. my system yeah. just to get another thing to install. Yeah. And I'm not even sure if it's installed correctly. I don't know if it installed partially. I don't know if it installed. Uh, it, there's tons of warnings everywhere. Do I ignore those warnings? Do I... Do more updates to try to get rid of those warnings? I don't know. Yeah. Um, so he goes on to say towards the end where he kind of gets to his point, which is, uh, thus, I don't want to do front-end development anymore. The joy is gone. I've given my resignation at my current place of employment and will be seeking an exclusive back-end role for my next adventure. The language does not matter as much to me. I know enough of them to know that, I, that they are very similar and thus easy enough to learn. I mean, I, it's funny because I didn't consciously do this, but I look back and I, I can, I feel like I subconsciously you did. did this. 
Yeah. I backed out of front end development. Yeah. It's just not fun. And I know that Lightning is probably an improvement, or it's certainly it's more modern anyway. But I, I just never, especially, I, I don't know, but I, I, during the whole Aura phase, I was just very not interested because it was just so not competitive. Uh, Lightning web components are way more competitive, way more in line with, you know, normal web development. And, but by then, I think I was already kind of checked out. At yeah. least it's in the Salesforce space. But I don't, I mean, I don't do any outside web development anymore. I used to, but I don't anymore. I mean, I just, I'm not interested. And no, you have me and, for that. And, uh, <laughs> and I do I, have to worry about that yeah, stuff. Yeah. In fact, because of the sector we deal with, I have to worry about accessibility requirements and everything. Uh, and now yeah. I'm having to worry more about language as well. Yeah, yeah that's nothing. Language, accessibility, uh, character sets. And it's not, it's not even. Get, even getting into security. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking like the, the stuff that a, that a basic, you'd want a basic web developer, like an, you know, a junior to intermediate web developer to know is, it's a ton of stuff. That's why these, you know, oh, I did a couple of trailheads or I did a, you know, this code camp or whatever. I'm like, hey, that, that's, that's good. It's yeah. good. But it actually just, it, it really, t- and I'm, I'm not trying to discourage anyone. I'm like, keep at it if that's what you want to do. You can, I mean, you can do it. I mean, anyway, I mean, almost anyone can do it. Right? It's just there's just people. The my I guess my my gripe is that it's so often underestimated what it actually takes to be a competent professional, even even if junior professional junior developer. Yeah. And there's and you know you look at our Slack uh, channels and and just the woes people have about hiring people that have that are just even r- remotely competent. Yeah. And that's the problem is there's just, you know, 99 out of, out of 100 resumes you get, they're missing half of these things. And they, they say they're a web developer, or a Salesforce developer, or whatever it is, but they just, they're just missing so much. And, and I was going to mention something along those lines that, that it, it, because of this kind of front-end development and because everyone's expected to kind of be this jack-of-all-trades that you have to know TypeScript and JavaScript and HTML and CSS and Lint and Webpack and Babel. It end, you end up with a software with a job requirement for a developer that it just doesn't match anybody out there because you're, you've you've put everything and everything under the sun because you're trying to find that one person that can do it all, and that's just not the reality. And I don't think that's what you want. I think you want someone who can specialize in your design and your layout and all that kind of stuff. And you want someone that can that can own the API between your your application and your backend systems. Yeah. And you want someone who can manage those backend systems if you're going to have a truly secure and well-thought-out application. But if you're relying on one person, that's going to be really tough to find, and it's going to be really tough to keep them because they're going to be so overwhelmed. So assuming it was ever a viable concept, do you believe that full-stack developer is a viable concept I, today? In fact, I wrote that in my notes, that I think we're in the world of full-stack fatigue. That I don't think there's... I think at one point it was easy to say I'm a full stack developer and hire based on someone being a full stack developer. I just don't think that's a reality anymore. I think there's way too many things going on and it's just it's just not something that, that can be done. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to listen to anyone else's feedback on that, but I just think, I think we've hit that point where full stack is just a legacy term because no one, we can't expect people to be the jack of all these trades. The, the skill sets are that complex and that specific that we're asking too much of people yeah 
and especially people and this again again and just there's so much of the messaging is is just wrong but you know we've gone through these things where we had you know top leaders of government really every every level of government being like oh just learn to code oh, oh we just killed your industry so just learn every the solution has always been learn to code learn to code learn to code yeah and i mean okay but that first of all a lot of people just it's not going to fit their their personality their their skill set their interests yeah and the ones that that aren't interested and it is kind of you know maybe fitting with their innate capabilities it takes longer than what anyone wants to admit to become a actual competent professional developer yeah and i don't i, I mean don't, i i i, I, always feel, I don't a bad feel all guy. that competent and i've been doing this for what 10 20 15 oh. years something like that you're totally incompetent john oh well, i know that but i thought we'd already established I'm that all you got so. <laughs> well yeah, <sure>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> damn it yeah until you can find someone better i know <laughs> I'm willing to move on. Yeah. Jay says he's got a spot for me. So. Does he? Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm sure he'd hire you in a second. Uh, he doesn't want me. I'm too high maintenance. Mm. Unemployable. Yeah. Let's see if I had anything on my list. Um, did you, was the was the thing about the super high SSD writes on the M1 Max? Was that was that just FUD? Oh, I didn't see that. You didn't. What see is that, that about? Yeah. Um, M1 Mac owners are experiencing high SSD writes over short periods of time. Interesting. Yeah. What is causing that? Just I don't know. I didn't dig into it, but I did see someone on our Slack the other day say that uh, if you if you do dig into the details, you'll see that it, was, it actually only affects a very small percentage of people. And so they, I don't think they had figured out what was. I'm sure they have by now, but I time. have high read and writes anyways because I run a cleaner on my system daily sometimes twice a day which is not good for ssds because you have a finite amount of read and writes and uh it'll it'll reduce your capacity very quickly it's weird that how we went from spinning rust platters with with big metal actuator arms that are constantly just jerking back and forth Mm -hmm. like a in like a engine running at ten thousand rpm yeah to solid state drives where literally nothing is moving and and the solid state drives are the ones we have to worry about them wearing out. Yeah. What? What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the world we live I've in. I've been sold a bill of goods. Yeah. <laughs> they are faster. Yeah. <laughs> I guess those are little electron paths wear out. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, all I know is I have to worry about it. I know that's got a finite number of reads and writes, so. Oh, hey, I wanted to mention, because um, you remind, reminded me of this. What's the CSS Tricks podcast called? Or I don't know if it's officially CSS Tricks, but the Shop Talk show? Yeah, Shop okay. Talk. They, uh, they had an episode, I think it's probably the most recent episode, which I found somewhat interesting. It was actually about uh, JavaScript and web components. And they brought this guy on as a guest, mm-hmm. which they don't do very often. They have guests every once in a while. Because uh, he had written some, some article, some some, you know, I don't say clickbait, but some, I don't know, some drama, you know, hot drama article. <laughs> and so they had him on the show just to talk about, you know, web components because he had built, oh, he had built a, um, an emoji picker and it was just okay. a pure web component. It wasn't, you know, React View, whatever, just pure web component technology. Nothing that requires like a, a compiler or any of that kind of crap. Okay. Anyway, uh, so I'm like halfway through this episode. This is this morning, actually. So this is fresh, John. It's very fresh. 
Certified and, fresh. And he mentions he works at Salesforce. <laughs> <laughs> so I think he's on like the lightning. Oh, so it's probably team. on App Exchange Labs right now. Or as the Salesforce be. Labs project. His name's Nolan Lawson. I've never heard okay. of him before, but anyway. Uh, I found it. I mean, the episode was already kind of interesting if you're super in the front end. Mm-hmm. But um, then, I'm behind on then, them, but I do then he started talking about you know Salesforce a little bit, and I was like, oh, oh. kind of my ears sparked up when he said he worked for Salesforce. So anyway, uh, yeah, I recommend that episode four fifty one Fahrenheit four fifty one. I think I think we need to invite more drama onto the show. What do you think? We need to find some controversial <laughs> topic and just have at it. Oh, you know? I don't know. I saw one other thing I had on my list here. This is interesting. This is kind of long though, but. This goes back to testing, and I just I, I'm, I feel like that this is going to be a lifelong fascination for me testing and how to test and how to test well, yeah, and efficiently. Yeah, I don't think it's, it's one of those things you won't solve. This is one of those things. I mean, this guy wrote this. I mean, if you look at the HTML for this, this has to be like the most basic HTML, and it's just like the default Times New Roman. There's no styling whatsoever on this thing, mm-hmm. and it's super wide. So I'm gonna have to make my browser smaller just so I can read this. But the title is: You need to be able to run your system. When developing a system, it is important to be able to run the system in its entirety. Run the unit tests doesn't count. The complexity of your system is in the interaction between the units. Run an individual service against mocks doesn't count. A mock will rarely behave identically to the real dependency, and the behavior of the individual service will be unrealistic. You need to run the actual system. Run an individual service in a shared stateful development environment running all the other services doesn't count. A shared development environment will be unreliable as it diverges more and more from the real system. Run most services in a mostly isolated development environment calling out to a few hard-to-run external services doesn't count. Those few external services on the edge of the mostly isolated development environment are often the most crucial ones. Without the ability to run modified versions of them, your development process is crippled. Furthermore, being dependent on external services greatly complicates where and how you can run the system. It's much harder to, for example, run tests with the system on every commit if that will access external services. Run all the services that make up the system in an isolated development environment does count. It's the bare minimum. Bonus points if this can be done completely on localhost without using an off-host cluster deployment system. So without the ability to actually run the entire system in this way while developing, many evil practices will tend to become common. Is this dramatic enough for you, John? Evil. It's reminding me of my story earlier. When I didn't have internet, I couldn't run code. So here's the evil practices that will become more common. Testing is harder and far less representative, and therefore many issues can only be found when changes are deployed to production. And this is something every everyone listening right now is identified with, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, okay. definitely in the Salesforce world. In turn, production deployment will cause issues more often, and so m- deployment will be more slow and less frequent, which is obviously, uh, it's also very evil. Deploying the system to new environments is more difficult since the developers aren't able to actually run the system. Existing practices in production will be cargo-culted, and copied around indefinitely, even when they are unnecessary or actively harmful. Exploratory usage of the system is very difficult, so it will be harder to consider using the system for purposes outside what it was originally developed for, and new use cases will become rare. 
Downstream clients who depend on the system will also suffer all these issues, since without the ability to run the upstream system in development, they can't run their own entire system, which is a superset of the entire uh, upstream system. <laughs> you following this? Yeah. So running the entire system during development is the first step to, pre to preventing these issues. Further steps include writing automated tests for the system, which can be run repeatedly during development, and using as, as much as possible the same code to run the system in development and in production. Developers of large or legacy systems that cannot already be run in, the, uh, in their entirety during the development process often believe that it's impractical to run the entire system during development. They'll talk about the maintenance, uh, sorry, the many dependencies of their system and how it requires careful configuration of a large number of hosts and how it's too complex or too reliable or too complex to get reliable behavior. In my experience, they're always wrong. These systems can be run locally during development with a relatively small investment of effort. Typically, these systems are just ultimately not as complicated as people think they are. Once the system's dependencies are actually known and understood, rather than being cargo culted or assumed, Running the systems and their dependencies is straightforward. Being able to run your entire system during development is just about the most basic requirement for a software project. It's not, on its own, sufficient for your development practices to be high quality. But if you can't do this, then you're not even in the running. Yeah. I'm not ignoring you. I'm looking up this uh, title of this book because it reminds me of this, the, um, the audiobook that I was listening to. That was based on. Um, I just read an entire article on a podcast. The Unicorn Project. <laughs> so that whole story around DevOps was about this company that essentially did not have the ability to create a developer environment and to basically do all these things that you talked about is to be able to kind of have a local development environment so they could actually run and test things. Yeah. I mean, there, there, I mean. There's, so as you were reading that, when you first started reading it, I was kind of a little, not defensive, but disagreeing with some of it. Because it almost seemed like you have to have this and you have to have that and you have to have that. Which I get if you're on a large team and you have the resources to invest in things like that. But sometimes you don't have resources. Sometimes you don't have the luxury of testing every freaking thing that you can think of. And you kind of have to live with a kind of certain amount of acceptable risk. You know, you know you're not going to test that 100 times over and make sure every scenario is correct. But you test it enough, and you feel confident in it, and you deploy it. You will have more production issues. Yeah. 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 I, mean, do, I mean, do you go to your car every day and turn it on and walk around and check all your lights and everything like you're supposed to? No? I think, aren't cars supposed to be smart enough to check themselves nowadays? No. Then you're dependent on, on all these kind of automated signals. Well, no, he's saying you just have to run the whole thing. No, but he said the over-dependence on, on, on automation signals. Or I'm not I'm using not those words, but there was one point where he mentioned that, and that's where I came up with that analogy was that, yeah, your car sometimes tells you your tires are low. Your car sometimes tells you you'd have a light out. Yeah. Um, I would say one thing that really makes this stuff more possible is Docker and the things that have popped up around Docker. It's like Docker Compose and Kubernetes. I mean, if you have a complex, like, set of things that have to run services and applications and databases in order that, that make up your entire mm -hmm. application. Yeah. I mean, with like Kubernetes, I mean, it's, or even Docker Compose. I like Docker Compose. It's just way easier to use and Kubernetes is almost always overkill. But I mean, it can just, within 10 seconds, you've got that whole, all that stuff spun up. Yeah. And it does take a little bit of investment up front. 
which your your wording was maybe people don't have the resources to do that. Okay. Well, then you better have even more resources because it's going to take even more resources to not do it. That was my my initial reaction because I was thinking of kind of my purview of scope, which is much smaller applications. Um, but when you're talking about full-blown applications that are touching a lot of different services, microservices and backend databases and and distributed applications across, you know, multiple, um, I'm going to use pods because I can't think of the right word. Clusters? Pods? Clusters. Okay. There you go. <laughs> across multiple clusters and and applications that span uh, different uh, viewports. So like desktop and mobile and all those kind of things that all have their own kind of different technologies. And yeah. I mean, trying to trying to test and manage all that and do regression across all that is is really difficult. So something like this, absolutely. But at, that's why initially when I was thinking of the things you were saying, I was thinking from the terms of my perspective and my data life. But on larger applications that do require all of those things I just mentioned, absolutely. I mean, having some kind of environment locally where I can run it would be advantageous and and much better. Yeah. And and even it's funny because even within like the, uh, I guess the Docker, one of these other things, uh, in addition, just like the big, the big, um, oh, what are they called? Like orchestrators, like Kubernetes is things like test containers. And that uh, this is a, a Java thing, but I, I feel like every different kind of community has this, but test containers uh, is a, something you can use in your, in your, I won't say unit tests, I guess they're not unit tests, mm-hmm. but Using JUnit, okay, to run to run tests, which mm-hmm. is like the you know very common testing framework. Yeah. Um, but it it can test containers. So, you know, when you when you run your tests, that it automatically will spin up like your Oracle database or all these other things you need um, that are just that are just Docker containers. Run the tests and then tear the containers down. Yeah. So just making that stuff easy—that's what you want. You want it to be. You want the right. You want doing the right thing to be easy, which we. I mean, we finally have a something synonymous to that, which is our scratch orgs, which well, we didn't have before. But you were gonna. Were you gonna talk about? I know you were doing. You've been checking out Cumulus CI. Yeah, I've been. Talking, yeah, I've been. I've been working with, working to learn as much as I can about that. So yeah. I did my first kind of initial read through of the documentation and kind of look at some of the APIs and in, in the kind of command line syntax and all that kind of stuff. And then this last weekend, I spent a lot of time just digging into it as deep as I could, um, following the trails, setting up the project the way they expect you to set it up, and then just kind of trying to incorporate it into the things that I wanted to do. Um, so I did get into that quite a bit in terms of its capabilities and everything. And, and, I, and fortunately, my opinion has not changed of it as I get deeper into it. It's, there's, there's some things that I wish it would do, but I understand the reasons it does what it does. But I can tell it's very well informed of real world projects and development in the Salesforce world, which doesn't always, there isn't always an analog in terms of traditional development when it comes to Salesforce, just because of the different limitations and the way we build and architect things and deploy things and the limitations inherent with that. Yeah. Including things like setting up data for either testing or development or even migrating data for that technically exists as data but is technically metadata that you need to kind of migrate between systems um just the flow of moving changes 
some of which that have to be done either manually or through some kind of external means because it's not like you can just copy over bits from one system to another. I mean, there's it's it's essentially an integration yeah. deployment. And, you know, just thinking you can copy bits, that ends up, you know, you end up with a dependency graph from hell that just ends up sucking up an entire org. It's like, well, if you want this, then you got to get all those things. And because all those things have dependencies and... Oh yeah, let's 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 talk about our issue this last week, which was we need to change a field to a different data type, and we had dependencies on it. And I had to to rename it. We renamed it too, right? Yeah, renamed it. Yeah, I had to do it twice because I forgot that we renamed the the API field as well, (laughs) field name as well. So I had to do it twice. So I had to change the data type, and then I had to do all my stuff again to change the the actual name of it. Yeah, right. Well, this just it's back to I mean, you need you need tools. I guess like cumulusly, I don't know that much about it. Um, so that you can, because the tools and you know you want to have discipline around your at least some some level of discipline around your processes. Yeah, not too much, but not too little, right? Just right. just the Goldilocks amount of discipline is is fine. But in order to achieve discipline, you have to have tools that enable you to do that, right? And and I think that's that's what I like about Cumulus CI is it it's giving it it's using utilizing all the technologies that we have access to. So it's not like it's doing something crazy or has some access to something that we don't have as so, as so individuals. It's open source doesn't rely on you know commercial paid services. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't have some backdoor to some Salesforce API that no one else has. Oh access right, to. no no private API usage. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it, it's not like it's doing anything that you couldn't do or grow yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does, but it, it has its own opinionated view, but what it does is it does kind of, it, it, it ensures that you're kind of doing things consistently, how you create your development or how you establish your dev environment is, is, is cookie cutter. How you establish your test environment is cookie cutter. How you move those through those different so phases is cookie cutter. It's all, it's all based on, it's, you know, it's, um, environment as code, right? It's all, it's all, it's all based on what's in your repository, what's right. on your desk, right? You okay. essentially give a command and say, I need to set up a dev environment. And it goes through and has all the automation built into it to set that up for you. So does it, does Cumulus CI build on, um, the SFDX yes. CLI? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's in some ways it's an overlay. In other ways, it it has its own polyfill or shim or whatever you want to call it for for certain mechanisms that that you, that you need to provide. Yeah, okay, and um, it's got CI in the name. Which does that stand for? Continuous integration. It does. Okay, yeah. is does it is there a is a is there a continuous integration as a service that it uses, or does it is this something like it would enable you to do continuous integration? I believe it's more of an enablement product. I I wanted to get into what it could do from an automated perspective, but I haven't gotten that far. So it's not tied to like Circle CI or N- not that I've things. seen. Okay. Yeah, it's very much it's very much a command line framework or tool, but it provides the ability to kind of do those things. Yeah, and it's informed by the way Salesforce works, and that's that's what's important. Versus going out and sub- subscribing to say what is it like GitHub Actions or something like that is that trying to incorporate the nuance of working with the Salesforce platform is either sometimes impossible or requires so much extra work that it's, it's not worth it. Although I could see tying again, based on my very cursory, Mm -hmm. I guess, knowledge of cumulus CI, I could see tying that in with GitHub actions. And I think you can. Okay. And I, I'm pretty sure you can, and I'm wanting to get to that point where you can. Yeah. Um, the capabilities are there. 
the right types of config are there. The right type of segmentation between environment is there. There's a few areas where I'm fuzzy about in terms of how I can customize certain aspects of it. Um, but again, I haven't gotten that deep into it. I got as deep as I could for a weekend, um, but I'm planning on getting deeper as I can. Good. That or maybe uh, we, we just reach out to them. And we need you to do that, John. <laughs> we need this so bad. <laughs> so I'm tasked with solving not only our packaging problems, but also our DevOps problems internally, which all need work. Yeah. And yeah. all need to be they done are. yesterday. As they do and as they always need. Yeah. We always need all the things and we always need them yesterday. Yeah. That's the way the world works. Well, good. I look forward to uh, uh, future updates from you on that. Well, John, let's wrap this thing up. Uh, I've mentioned our Slack several times. Anyone listening right now, if you have not joined our Slack, please do so. You'll enjoy it. I promise. It's at uh, gooddayserpodcast.com. Uh, and then click on community and mm -hmm. just fill out the thing and John will add you. Yep. And if you don't enjoy it, uh, we will give you a 100% refund, money back guarantee. <laughs> um, I am woefully uh, backlogged, not backlogged. It's not like I... I'm just I'm behind on getting stickers out, but I'm I'm going to do and I'm going to get my Dymo printer back out, and I, everyone who's requested stickers, I'm you're in a spreadsheet. I'm going to print out the labels, and I'm going to get those sent out. So if you want to get in this next batch, uh, send us an email at info at gooddaysirpodcast.com and just say you want stickers, and I have to have your address and yeah. and how many you want. Do you want you know two just for yourself or do you have like a, a group at work or a, some group or whatever you need to, i can i think i can get up to 10 or 20 in these little envelopes so uh yeah just let me know i've done more than that i especially have sent in sending to other countries which we, we can do we have international stamps so uh don't be don't be shy if you live in uh a foreign foreign country we, sh <laughs> we ship to foreigners <laughs> why do you switch accents i, I don't know i just it, i don't know i just had to sorry the Texan in me, John. I stop you there and say good day, sir. Yeah, I know. <laughs> what else? Um, I thought like I was going to say something. Anyway, I look forward to your to your future Cumulus CI updates. Yeah, I think I... for at least a while it's going to be a weekly thing because not only do they have the Cumulus CI product, and this is all Salesforce.org tooling. So these are the guys that typically build things like the education package and the yeah. NP NPS e and the e nonprofit e success pack, NPSP. Yep. Um, and so and from my perspective, it's built on real-world challenges that they've had in yes. trying to manage those projects. Yep. So that's why I'm I'm so intrigued by it. So not only do they have the CI, but they also have some tools that you can fork and host and all that kind of stuff, like their Meta Deploy, Meta CI, and there's another one that I'll be getting into soon. So you know, we I know we have a lot of .org folks in the in the Good Day Sir community. I wonder if anyone would like to come on the show and and school us. Absolutely. Know? Yeah. So if anyone uh, would like to do that, just let us know. And then to that, I will say good day, sir. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir.